Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 16 of Jointly Venturing, the world's only podcast, which focuses on a whole range of aspects relating to the question of world citizenship. And one of the issues that arises when speaking about world citizenship is the the whole question of allegiance and responsibility. Uh, we all understand that we're nationals or citizens of certain countries and we have, at least under law, certain allegiances and certain responsibilities um, in that country. But what would those responsibilities and allegiances look like if we truly did have a world that was comprised ultimately of everyone sharing the same world citizenship? Well, our view is, among other things, that we would ultimately have allegiance and responsibility to everyone. And everyone would have that same responsibility and allegiance towards all of us. And one of the stepping stones to getting to that point down the road, whenever that day may occur, is the whole question of having a sense of what the Dalai Lama, for instance, calls universal responsibility um, and what the humanitarian sector of the world, the United Nations and all of its agencies and others would also call ultimately our social responsibility towards our fellow human beings. We've come a long way as human beings towards that ultimate aim of everyone having responsibility for everyone else. And part of the ways that that manifests in the real world is, is work that people do internationally so outside their their country of residence or their country of birth um, working to assist countries and people in countries that are facing oppression or human rights violations to overcome those things and in my work for a whole range of international human rights NGOs um, United Nations agencies and others I've had you know extremely good fortune to be able to work in many many dozens of countries um, all across the world in all continents except Antarctica. And one of the countries where I've spent a lot of time um, in recent years in particular, um, and where you know literally hundreds and hundreds of other foreigners have spent a lot of time trying to push things in the right direction, is the country of Myanmar in Southeast Asia. Um, major political reforms commenced in Myanmar in 2011, um, and that was, of course, preceded by a very lengthy period of uh, military rule, um, which held power for most of the time since 1948, when the colony of Burma uh, became independent. And most of the work that I have done in Myanmar uh, has focused on the question of housing, land, and property rights issues. And um, I've done a considerable portion of this work um, with an excellent colleague who we have on the line with us today, um, who's also worked very extensively across all corners of the country on housing, land, and property rights issues. And we just wanted to talk briefly today about what, what these issues are. They're, they're issues that are not generally covered in the mass media. You don't really hear that much about housing, land, and property rights issues, but really at their core, they're some of the most fundamental ways by which people experience life in countries in the around the world. And we thought it would be useful to outline what some of the key components are in a country that's meant to be going through 
structural political transition and some of the major housing, land and property rights obstacles that uh, the people of Myanmar face um, every day. So we're lucky to have with us today um, uh, lawyer, international housing land and property rights expert, Sean Buta, who's speaking to us uh, via Skype. So how are you doing today, Sean? Um, very well. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. So maybe we'll just start with um, you outlining some of the work you've been doing lately on housing land and property rights in Myanmar, and then we can delve into some of those issues as it goes on. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been focusing on HLP work in Myanmar for about the last four years. Um, and as you mentioned, I've worked in different areas of the country, so a little bit in the West uh, prior to the um, prior to the mass exodus in the last few years, um, a little bit in the southeast uh, and the northeast uh, more recently. Uh, and most of most of the HLP issues have been related to displacement due to the conflict um, and looking at the the situation of people who are in in displacement in in IDP camps um, and what their what their HLP rights are and and looking at how we can improve improve them. So it's basically right. it for the last four years. Right, excellent. And um, I mean, maybe you should phrase that in terms of what their rights aren't, because um, <laughs> you know, work that we've been doing on the legislative front, analyzing laws and scrutinizing laws. Um, proposing other laws and institutions, mm. you know, more or less always comes back to the same point, um, which is that, you know, the people of Myanmar, all 54 million of them, um, when it comes to HLP rights, um, deserve a lot more than they're actually getting on a daily basis. And I think, you know, one of the easiest ways perhaps to explain to listeners what it's actually like is simply to view uh, view the world through the prism of housing land and property rights law in Myanmar through the lens of one family and, and try to compare it to the type of rights you would have in a range of other countries. And mm. if you boil it all down, and of course there's major distinctions between regions and, and income groups and so on and so forth, but, but mm. one of the common mm. denominators essentially is that, you know, people in Myanmar have virtually no legal protection against forced eviction or forced displacement if this is the wish and objective of more powerful forces in society. Mm. Very difficult to resist that. And as a result, um, you know, quite literally millions of people have faced various forms of displacement um, over the years, both before the reforms commenced in 2011 and obviously after. Most notably, you know, the mass exodus of Rohingya people into Bangladesh, which um, has now resulted in, I guess, over a million people being resident involuntarily mm. in Bangladesh. But I think that's, you know, that's one of the key things that often strikes me working on HLP issues in the country is that, you know, should someone more powerful than you want to take your land or take your home, it's pretty much guaranteed that they'll be able to get away with it, you know, despite whatever yeah. reforms have come yeah. since uh, yeah. 2011. Would you share that view? Uh, definitely. I think um, it, when reforms started to happen, uh, a lot of people in the international community were um, very, very happy and 
um, thinking it was going to be this like wonderful new situation. But as time goes on, um, you start to see the evidence building up of the way that the military has very much controlled the transition. Um, and they've done that in a very clever way through uh, legislation and administration and um, finding ways to control and keep hold of the of what happens, particularly in the land sector. Um, and the military is still able to act very much with impunity. Um, and we're still seeing no uh, land rights justice or any transitional justice for all of the uh, historical land grabbing that was going on um, through the through the military junta era. And so those are all outstanding claims that uh, people still have no ability to uh, address, um, but just because there's a massive power imbalance um, between the average farmer who has lost his five acres of paddy land, for example, and the, you know, the regional commander who who has stolen that land for a military base, let's say, for example, or stolen it and then given it to one of his friends who's got a company, a coal mine or a, a cement factory or whatever the case may be. Um, so there's all of those outstanding claims still. Uh, and then in addition to that, the, the improvement in the foreign investment uh, environment, let's say, for example, um, has also facilitated new grabs and those are not being addressed either. Um, so you've got many, many layers of um, different types of land rights violations over the years. I would say increasing and likely to increase even further with, you know, Belt and Road initiatives in the northeast and and these types of things. Um, and then on top of that, you've got conflict displacement and the land um, issues around that. You mentioned the Rohingya situation, which is. Uh, getting more and more complex to to um, to fix with each day that goes on because more land is disappearing, villages get bulldozed, um, new buildings go up in the places where Rohingya villages used to be and th those are given to other ethnic groups, things like that. So there are many, many, many layers of um, different types of rights violations that are just not being addressed um, in Myanmar. Right. And, you know, there was a, so much hope when the reform process started um, back in 2011, just eight years ago, that, um, you know, the military publicly and, and voluntarily giving up power to a former general, uh, but nonetheless to a ostensibly civilian regime was going to really result in fundamental improvements in the uh, housing land and property rights code and practice um, in the country. But Certainly, uh, from my point of view, uh, you know, those things have not panned out. And in fact, I would say one can argue that um, at, at a structural level, um, uh, they may have actually gotten quite a bit worse, particularly when it comes to some of the new legislation that's come into force since 2012, the, the Farmland Act and the Vacant Fallow and Virgin Land Law and, and a range of other laws, the new... Um, Land, the new Land Acquisition Act and Land mm. Acquisition Settlement Rehabilitation Law. Um, mm. Those things kind of structurally enable um, uh, people that wish to grab land uh, with a legal pretext and a legal rationale to, to basically mm. be able to get away with it. So rather than protecting the rights of the 70 or 80 percent of the people that live off the land in the rural areas, 
Um, these laws, for instance, I mean, listeners will will not even be able to believe their ears, but the you know the vacant fallow and virgin land law um, essentially has the ability to declare 60, 70, maybe even more percent of the landmass in the country as vacant because it's customary land law that governs uh, the dimensions of that of that land. So mm. simply it's not recognized by formal statutory law, it can be classified as vacant and potentially then essentially taken and and put into the state's land coffers and then doled out to political connections that, um, you know, may have facilitated that, that process. And, you know, that's a very staggering thing. And, you know, despite that fact, there's a range of provisions in the Constitution, which are kind of protective, at least in principle, mm. of people to resettle where they settle and resettle in the country wherever they'd like to not suffer discrimination of any sort, mm. um, to get the protection of the state. But none of those are ever in practice strong enough to um, stop the scale of of displacement and land grabbing that you know has occurred in the country we at you know the displacement solutions one of the other organizations i work for um came out with a report in october about all about land grabbing as an internationally uh, wrongful act and, and it has a roadmap in it for ending um land grabbing it's quite a long report 180 pages or so that goes into you know great detail about how this happens why it happens the laws that are used and what can be done to, um, you know, improve the prospects for ordinary people in um, in Myanmar who have really uh, suffered for far too long in, in uh, living situations that are simply not secure. And, you know, planning your life in a, in a state of perpetual tenure insecurity with the th constant threat of eviction or displacement looming over your head makes planning for the future quite difficult. Yeah. And, you know, that's not going to be to the benefit, ultimately, of the future prosperity and peace and stability and wealth creation and poverty alleviation um, that, you know, Myanmar ostensibly is seeking to um, secure, you know, and experience all around the world shows that security of tenure is a fundamental stepping stone towards building, you know, societies that are based on the rule of law that give people some degree of control over their own housing, land and property resources. And without it, um, you're simply guaranteeing a, a sort of perpetual state of not just instability, but also growing poverty and disenfranchisement. Yeah, um, I think, I think um, basically you, you've described at the beginning there, the, the way that uh, the, the sword has been replaced by the pen in Myanmar. So, and in, instead of simply um, controlling the place militarily, um, some of those controls have been um, transposed into uh, legislation, which is which is administered um, uh, heavily with the participation of the G of the general administration department, which is connected to home affairs and the military. Um, so it's been a very smart way for the military to transition into civilian life and still maintain this control. And and then in addition, what you mentioned about the VFV law, I mean, just to give people an, an idea, I've been working recently in Shan State, which is in the northeast. It's a huge, it's a huge part of the landmass in Myanmar, and around half a million acres of um, VFV land has been granted as concessions by the government. Um, 
And you mentioned the new amendments to the VFV law, which in fact criminalises people for going onto their own land. They might have been farming that land for generations, for example, but as of March, if they get caught on that land, they can be prosecuted. Um, they could face two years in jail. They could face a, a monetary fine. Um, and when you think about the impact of that land, so far, as I mentioned, half a million acres has been granted in, in Shan as VFV land. There's a, another 15 million acres classified as VFV land in Shan State. Think about the size of that area and the amount of people that are living on that land and using it under customary land management practices who could be at risk of jail time. That That's the, that's the level of ridiculousness that we're that we're seeing in the law um yeah. and it's happening it's, it's happening exactly. prosecutions are happening i i met i met um to last month i met 22 farmers who were being prosecuted um for trespass uh no legal representation they had no real knowledge of of what was happening to them uh, and they were due in court seven days after i was meeting with them and wow. that's and that the statistics on how many prosecutions there are happening uh, are being looked into now by Namati and a few other groups uh, who focus on, on land rights. Um, but the potential numbers are just mind-boggling. Um, yeah, particularly when you consider that the vast majority of people live in, in the countryside and exactly. live on customary Six, land. I mean, that's the majority of people in the country by far. It's about very 60 few, 70 percent. Right, right. Uh, and the rest are villages or uh, cities. Right. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Apparently exactly. small, uh, the percentage of the ur urban population in Myanmar compared to a lot of other countries. Yes, um, and and that that part that portion of the population that lives in um in, uh, in uh, rural areas are uh, also generating a huge amount of the um, the GNP, um, but they also happen to be majority in the ethnic areas which form the periphery of the country around the central lowlands. So um, this is where the land issue becomes tied into the conflict, right? Uh, the conflict issue, but also the economic development issue. So the conflict and the economic development stuff is starting to overlap in a way that the government maybe wants to see more, for, more investment in the country and more big infrastructure projects and dams and hydropower and all of this sort of stuff. Um, and they want to let that happen in these ethnic areas. And so right. this, this, this overlap of those um, interests happening on and in the areas where ethnic people are the majority, um, and then that brings in the presence of the military, and this is where you start to see militarization and land grabbing for military bases and this sort of stuff. So it's very, very difficult to unpack all of the factors that are going into land grabbing. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, just so people know, there's, what is it, 135 different ethnic groups in mm -hmm. uh, Myanmar. The majority group are Burman ethnic origin. And they constitute, I believe, about 62% of the population, I think, from memory. Is that right? Yep, that's about right. And the, so, you know, two-thirds and then the, the remainder, remaining 38% uh, are, um, they could be Karen, they could be Kareni, they could be Shan, they could be Chin, they could be Rakhine, they could be all sorts of different ethnic groups. And many of them had, had or have armed uh, 
uh, armies uh, supporting their own particular interests, so they would argue self-defense, that have been under arms for decades in many cases. There's been a peace process underway since 2011. That was part of the reason, at least public reason, why the political uh, structural reforms began. But that peace process is essentially ground to a halt. It's largely a moribund process now, as far as I can tell, after a few initial hopeful sounds um, back in 2012, 13, 14, um, it seems to me um, that it's really not taking off in any sort of meaningful way. There's, there's no chance of a comprehensive peace agreement on the horizon. And certainly there's no comprehensive action taken yet, despite efforts by NGOs and others, including ourselves, to establish a, rest, a national restitution body within the context of the peace process and beyond that would allow these millions of people with outstanding restitution claims to have an independent um, tribunal uh, consider their case and help them to get their land back. So that's still lacking. We also have the country of Gambia recently filing a case against Myanmar at the International Court of Justice, uh, the first hearings of which occurred um, last week. Myanmar was very uh, uniquely represented by the ostensible head of state, um, Aung San Suu Kyi, who made uh, introductory statements at the initial hearing that were widely, widely, very intensively uh, criticized uh, globally. We also have cases pending at the International Criminal Court um, against some of the generals and others that were allegedly responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity linked to the mass exodus um, of the Rohingya. Um, and we have investment numbers, on the other, other hand, declining, the, the last I heard. And, um, oh, and also, you know, demining initiatives that were also meant to take place have also effectively, as far as I know, uh, ground to a halt. And that then again raises the other issue of what happens to land that's been demined. I, I worked extensively on that issue for a few months um, in Myanmar a few years back. And, you know, one of the findings was uh, that, you know, there was, they were using figures as, as high as 5 million acres of land in Myanmar being uh, infected with either mines or unexploded ordnance. Um, so incredibly high amounts of land, most of which now has no commercial value because of the ordinance and the mines. But when it's cleared, it suddenly goes from being worthless to often cases being priceless. And there's a great concern, of course, that instead of the original owners getting that land back, um, that it will immediately fall into the hands of mining companies, military officials, local political officials, just strongmen in the area, maybe even some of the guerrilla groups. Um, and the legitimate owners of the land will again be, you know, left out in the cold. So you have this an entire spectrum of developments, both globally and domestically, um, which are really not pushing things in the right direction. There was a really, I think, one of the highlights of the post-reform period when it comes to HLP issues, and I think you'd probably agree, was the 2016 um you know, uh, land policy document that was adopted. And that was meant to form the basis of an eventual comprehensive land law. Um, but uh, have you heard any recent developments on that, uh, where, where this idea of a new land law has 
gone, whether it's likely to happen, and whether any of the needed changes will, will be in it? Um, so I attended a, a conference a couple of weeks ago, and it was uh, basically a meeting of different uh, land stakeholders, CSOs and NGOs. Uh, and the information coming out of that forum was that the national land law is uh, has a drafting committee, um, but nobody really understands how the members of the of the drafting committee were chosen. Um, and basically, it's gotten underway apparently, but it's it hasn't gotten very far. It's only just started. Uh, so this meeting was about the different land actors getting together and, and working out how they could advocate to make sure that the land, the national land law matches that policy that you mentioned because the, the policy itself is quite progressive. Um, but yeah. unless, unless it's matched by, by actual law, um, that, then, it, then it won't be that useful. Um, my concern, though, that's important. That's obviously important. We need that law to match that policy um, and match those progressive clauses. But my concern really is is structural because we can have the best law in place, uh, but if it's not followed and it's not enforced properly, um, it's going to be it's going to be worthless. And the problem is in Myanmar, there has been such a culture of impunity and lack of rule of law for so long, decades and decades that. Um, there are laws on the books which do protect HLP rights. And if we look at the Land Acquisition Act from 1894, there's wonderful provisions in there. If the government takes your land for for a public purpose, then you should be compensated at 15 market value plus 15%. Mm-hmm. That's, that's wonderful. It's never, ever happened <laughs> in reality. Right. Well, the acquisition has happened, but the, <laughs> the acquisition the happens. hasn't. <laughs> the acquisition happens, that's for sure. Uh, but it's not really acquisition because an acquisition is when you purchase something. Um, this is just a theft. If you right. don't receive the compensation, then that's just theft. Mm-hmm. So uh, that you know, so the the law is in many ways the many laws are in place that are that are protective, but. The enforcement is not there. So my concern about the national land law is not the fact that uh, not only that it, that it won't match the policy, but that we will see this perpetuation of these ridiculous committees uh, put in charge of the administration of the law. And that's where everything falls down, because um, when you have those committees in place like they are presently administering the laws down to the township level, mm-hmm. it's headed by the general administration department. They have got too many connections to the military and ex-military officers who are now in companies, etc. Um, they have a clear conflict of interest. Um, so you can't have the people who have been responsible for the most land grabbing in the country historically administering the laws about who can and can't use land. It's a clear conflict of interest, and there's no yeah, way to for people to appeal their way out of those bodies because there's finality clauses that mean those bodies are the final word on who gets leases, who gets farmland grants, who gets VFE grants, um, etc. So my concern is is the administration of the laws as well, and we need to we need to make sure that there's a fundamental restructuring of of um, of the administration. And that is not something that has been talked about 
at any length as far as I can tell so far. Right. I mean, it's similar in a way to, you know, the requirements under the uh, farmland law. The, in order to get a land use certificate, you have to register it with the uh, local authorities who may very well be the very same individual that shortly before that stole a part of your land. Correct. So, you know, great reluctance by huge numbers of people to um, register their land and get these so-called land certificates. We should also inform listeners that under um, Article 37, I think it is, of the National Constitution, and historically, um, all land in Myanmar ultimately belongs to the state. And that has its benefits, but it also has its drawbacks, and that's often used, once again, as a as a legal rationale for achieving some of the objectives of these land grabbers um, to the detriment of ordinary people who simply want to get on with their lives. Mm. And so, yeah, there are some provisions in some laws which are generally, at least on the surface, supportive. And if you only focused on those and you had a court system that was actually independent, free, impartial, quick and easy to use with lawyers that were also high quality and not too expensive, mm. you know, then we could perhaps get somewhere. Um, mm. But almost almost every fundamental ingredient that one needs in order to have a, a fully functioning HLP system um, really is not yet in place in the country in a manner that protects the legitimate housing, land, and property rights of the people of the country as recognized in some of those laws and, and most certainly under a range of international human rights treaties that the government of Myanmar has freely and voluntarily undertaken to comply with based on their ratification. So it's not an absence of laws or laws that can be looked to, um, you know, for guidance. It's really the lack of will uh, to implement them in the, by, those, by those who realize that if HLP rights were properly protected across the board in all of their manifestations in the country, then traditional practices of land grabbing, land theft, um, illegal mining, a whole range of activities that take place in the land sector simply would not be possible to the degree that they are today. So yeah. instead of, you know, today we have a situation where literally landowners and farmers are being criminalized from entering their land and nothing ever happens to those who actually steal this land arbitrarily. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's a it's remarkable quite, situation. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not quite, consistent it's with quite. the Buddhism that I've heard about. It's not <laughs> consistent with the pagodas in the country. It's not consistent with the grandeur and the beauty of the nation and the people that one meets there, the vast majority of whom are truly kind and wonderful people. It's just not, it's not consistent with that. And it really, really needs to change. And you know, everyone in Burma will benefit in the end by having a, a system that truly respects people's housing, land and property rights, not only because it's their right, but also because it's good for the economy. Ultimately, it's good for social stability. It's good for, you know, domestic peace and tranquility. And it will really allow the country to evolve in a positive direction and perhaps one day return to what it once was, the, the rice bowl of planet Earth. Yeah, I mean, the, the potential of the country is just amazing, um, but it's being completely squandered um, because of um, how the country is run. 
um, and and what's happened historically. And just to just to touch on something you mentioned before, like we we're talking about the need for an independent judiciary and all of that, that that's a secondary level of of protections. Um, which is constitutionally enshrined as well, but we, we don't even really need that if we just simply had independent administrators who were independent with no vested interests um, in resolving land issues. And if that could be done, um, yes, you could have the courts as a backup, but they don't not necess- that's that's a last resort. Um, but just to just to point out something else is the the mention the in example that I mentioned before about those twenty two farmers who were being prosecuted in Shan State, they, they're, just to give people an idea about how this sort of thing happens, those people lost their land in the 90s. Uh, the military uh, grabbed their land and then they built a military base on it. Um, and they were there for about five years, but then whatever the purpose of that battalion was changed and instead of having a, a place to house troops, it became some sort of engineering facility or something. So about a hundred acres was taken in this case, and they only used about five acres, the military. So mm-hmm. the farmers who are the original owners of this land are in the village right beside the land, and they're looking at that land sit there vacant for 20 or 30 years, not being used at all. So finally they decide, mm-hmm. okay, we've had enough of this. Let's, just go on there and plant you know yeah so they do that and as soon as they do that they're arrested so imagine how frustrating that is absolutely imagine how ridiculous that is to you as a a farmer you're just trying to you know grow a crop of corn and some vegetables to feed your family you're not making like millions of dollars off it it's just subsistence with maybe a little bit of profit right and and the military wants to take that off you and then not use it and just have you sit there looking at your own land while you are broke and having to do whatever. Your wife has to travel to China to work as a seasonal labourer there. Your sons have to go to Thailand and work in dangerous industries there um, just so that your family can survive. And everything that you need is right beside your house. And if you set foot on there, you're in jail. That's the sort of nonsense right. that's going on. Oh, absolutely. And um, you know, not very close to resolution in a positive way when it comes to, you know, the rights of, of ordinary people. How no. about, the, um, uh, to what extent have you seen evidence of the impacts of China's Belt and Road Initiative inside Myanmar? Is that prevalent? I, yeah, yeah. So how does it look like on the ground? Uh, well, I heard a, an anecdote recently, and I, I haven't been, I haven't verified this. Um, I don't think it's possible to verify, but basically that ceasefire period in the northeast, which you would have heard about, which ended uh, a couple of months ago, um, that that lasted just perfectly long enough for the government to demarcate all the land that's going to be necessary for the railway that's going to run from Yunnan all the way to Mandalay and over to the Chowpu economic zone. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, I think that that sort of that sort of um, 
infrastructure development that's going to be attached to the Belton Road if it follows the patterns that we've seen in other um, in other types of big projects like that is going to lead to land more land theft and displacement because um, yeah, often they use the, the military is often assigned to protect those sorts of um, activities and that's what happened in the the Chalpu gas pipeline um, land was confiscated people used as forced labor um, and that's maybe what we'll see in the northeast so it doesn't look like um, it doesn't look very positive some of the projects about with the Bel Belton Road um, may be affected by the conflict and some people think that's what the rationale is for the renewed fighting in the northeast is uh, this the Brotherhood alliances um, sending a message to China that we could disrupt things um, badly if we don't if we don't get some of what we want and uh, who's that? like who's making the, who's doing the disruption uh, the Taang National Liberation Army and the Arakan Army and the the MNDAA. So um, they have been there, there's been clashes in the northeast. Uh, I, I started research up there about three months ago, and I would say there's been clashes almost every day or every other day, um, which wow. is not really being reported because. Mm -hmm. it's, it's reasonably low level, but there've been there've been fatalities for sure, including civilians. Um, so the northeast is very unstable at the moment. So it's interesting to watch what China does and whether they will whether they will press ahead with this sort of stuff because it's it's um it's part of their big initiative, um, and what sort of influence they will have on the on the peace process, whether they can control, um, whether they can influence the Tatmadaw, and whether they can control. Um, these groups in the these EAOs in the northeast. It's a very, very interesting uh, balance going on up there at the moment. Um, and uh, something that's interesting to me as well is that the, you know, the Tatmadaw, uh, well, the civilian part of the government, Suchi and her her friends, uh, are very sort of buddy buddy with with the Chinese and trying to develop this investments and and get them in. Um, but we have to remember that the, the Tatmadaw itself has been fighting, well, were fighting against the, the Communist Party of Burma for decades. It, the, the Communist Party of Burma was their biggest adversary for many, many years. Um, so I, I, I wonder in the background what the military think about this new sort of open arms to China policy. Was the Communist Party backed by China? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. right. Right. Has has the government signed, uh, you know, in traditional Belt and Road uh, fashion, have they signed large scale uh, yeah. loans and contracts with China? Yeah, yeah. The you China, have any idea uh, what the size China, of those uh, are? cooperation uh, agreement. Uh, so that's what part of this railway. The railway is part of that. Um, and then there are some other. There are some other big projects which uh, there's a number of hydropower dams. That are being built in the northeast, um, which um, you know, uh, companies that are attached to some nefarious characters uh, and their descendants, who made their money out of some illegal activities back in the day, um, mm -hmm. and they are all the, the go-to companies. Do we know the scale <laughs> of these? Uh, uh, 
in, of the loans that have been made? Do we know how big they are? Uh, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's pretty large scale. I mean, when you're talking about transnational railways and, and hydropower dams, you're talking about pretty big, pretty big um, amounts of money. Are these loans that Myanmar has the capacity to repay? Uh, I'm not sure. I think they have scaled down from the initial sort of uh, discussions. Um, but I'm not sure what's going on behind the scenes, whether that's just because of the um, because of the um, the fighting that's happening as well in the northeast. Maybe it, it's it's not prudent at the moment to proceed with those projects. On I'm not really sure. I'm not an expert in those areas, unfortunately. Well, remember a few years back there was they were building the um, I'm not sure how you say it properly the Miatson Dam, yeah, Miatson Dam project. Yep. That was cancelled by the previous president, um, Tain mm. um largely for reasons I I heard at the time to do with uh, fears within the governing classes of the country about uh, China having too big of a role mm. in uh, Myanmar, and that was the kind of true rationale behind why the the very large project was uh, stopped it wasn't for environmental reasons or to protect people's <laughs> land rights or anything it was basically we need to yeah. show uh, you know china that we actually have sovereignty here in yeah. Myanmar. and um so it sounds like that way of thinking is not necessarily uh prevalent anymore based on what you're saying about the uh the loans and the agreements um as part of the belt and road initiative yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting if uh, if environmental and and uh, customary rights actors, if their interests aligned with the government for a change, that would be that would be ironic. <laughs> yeah, um, but it really seems but, like the. I mean, it seems like the West, broadly defined, has uh, which had a very prominent role, I must say, during the the uh, military regimes of the Slork and the SBDC in the run-up to the reforms of 2011, I mean, the West was clearly um, deeply engaged with the opposition to, you know, facilitate a peaceful uh, transfer of power into civilian hands. And it seems like they were there very heavily at the beginning of the reform process, but it seems to me that their interest and their engagement is, is really declining, uh, in part because of what happened in Rakhine State to the Rohingya. Um, but also because uh, they just simply don't have the capacity to match uh, what China is attempting to do in the country mm. in terms of exerting influence. Do you, can you confirm that? Um, I can't confirm it, but I mean, it seems uh, likely to me. Be, and, and also, I think with with what happened in, in the West um, and the amount of condemnation that's coming out of the, out of the West, um, it's going to be increasingly more difficult to um to influence the government especially you know all the criticism is just human rights based criticisms right and um government doesn't want to hear that they don't want to hear that and particularly not i mean to, to us and to us looking from the outside ethnic cleansing is about as big as it gets in terms of violations right so Yep. It's like as bad as it could possibly be. Um, but you're talking about something that internally in the country is reasonably popular, I hate to say. Um, 
There were, there were demonstrations right. for Suchi last week of support in Mahabandua Park. They all turned out to watch the big screen and support Mother Sue. Um, it's very, very popular stuff. And so the the West is in a position where they, the different governments have to criticise what's going on, but the government doesn't want to hear it because it's very popular. Um, meanwhile, well, general, China, China yeah, it's like, that's, oh, sorry, not, that's none of our business. That's your internal business. Um, how about this railroad? <laughs> right. So, no, absolutely. I mean, that's the approach China always takes. You know, we, we're not going to meddle with your internal affairs. You don't meddle with ours. We won't meddle with yours. Just give mm -hmm. us a few contracts, you know, and we'll help you on your way to the, the blissful kingdom of development. Yeah, you know? exactly. So there's been a, yeah, there's been a, there's been a change there, but that's the humanitarian actors and the rule of law actors and those sorts of things. But you'll still see the International Financial Corporation heavily involved in all of these in all of these like hydropower and all of these other projects they're heavily involved still world bank mm -hmm. um so they don't they don't lose that much influence because they're all just about about money and about investment um and development right. so right. if you take out the rhetoric you can stay popular if you can stay if you can remove the human rights from your um from your conversation and just have a chat about investments and those sorts of things, you can still operate, I think, quite easily there. Well, I, I recall, you know, interestingly, um, few, two or three years ago, um, just, you know, thinking about the corporate sector and foreign investment in the country, you know, Coca-Cola came in big mm. years ago, one of the biggest corporations in the world. And, um, you know, and recently have been declared one of the biggest polluters in the world for their plastic bottling and, and other practices. Um, but beyond all of that, um, th they did adopt a zero land grabbing policy in Myanmar, Myanmar specific policy on that. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's two or three years now, which really is a, you know, quite remarkable document. I mean, certainly influenced by, you know, certain NGOs locally, but essentially it said, you know, we're not going to build any bottling plants or any processing plants on any land that has been ever grabbed in the past. And we will simply not accept um, the practice of land grabbing in any way when it comes to our operations in Myanmar, whether that's been held to and whether it's been complied with, I don't know, but at least they took the step. Um, yeah, something, say, you know, all companies. When, when did they wrap up their operations? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But at least they did that. And it's, you know, that's something concrete that other countries could at least, you know, consider. If you're going to invest in the country at the very least, you know, try not to uh, try to do no harm, you know, um, at yeah. the very least. Um, but that's not that prevalent, you know, social corporate social responsibility in the country. Um, you know, there's an NGO that focuses on it and stuff. Um, but it's not really that major of a theme. Um, uh, spread across the country, uh, not nearly as big as it should be. And, you know, things like that need to be, you know, taken into account in the country. I mean, things that exist almost second nature in other countries are simply, you know, absent in Myanmar. I mean, the National Human Rights Commission, that exists. It sounds great on paper. And I, you know, I've met several of the commissioners in the past, and they're fantastic people. But the, the, impact that that body has compared to what it should have is is minuscule you know yeah. and you can you can apply that logic to almost every kind of pro-human rights pro-people organization in the country particularly at the 
um, you know, government level. Yeah. And it just yeah. is difficult to make things happen. You know, in their favor, you know, the NLD, the National League for Democracy government, that was the most recent elected government headed by Aung San Suu Kyi, they did have in their party platform and the objective to give land back to the farmers who had it stolen in the past. And that was in their platform. Mm -hmm. And they even established a range of different bodies to um, to deal with claims of people um, who felt that their land had been taken illegitimately. The uh, one was called the Central Land Grab Reinvestigation Committee, etc. And that was a really you know positive step, once again, on paper. Um, and a few thousand acres, maybe even a bit more, was in fact given back through those processes. Mm -hmm. But it nonetheless, and that's good, and we we totally support that and, and are in favor of that. But at the same time, perhaps ninety percent or more of land claims that could be made have not ever yet been made or adjudicated, mm -hmm. and there's no potential to address those under this land um, reinvestigation committee. So that's what also really needs to happen is that there needs to be an independent restitution commission set up that enables every single person in the country who feels that their land was taken illegitimately at any time since either 1988 when the uh, uh, military took over again or maybe since the beginning of the reform process 2011 or maybe going back all the way to 1962 when the Niwin dictatorship began, they need to decide when that cutoff date is. But people need to be given a chance to make their claim, to make their case, that they should no longer have to languish waiting to hear about whether or not they're going to get the land back that has been in their family or their um, their people for sometimes generations. And you know, unless that's resolved, um, people are never going to be satisfied you know they those things need to be sorted out they need to be a fundamental part of both a peace process broadly defined but also just general social relations mm -hmm. in society i think they also have to finally come to the realization that land grabbing has to just stop land grabbing broadly defined in all of its forms and manifestations simply has to stop they need to say no more land grabbing and that has to come from the top and they have to just deal with what they've got and move forward on that basis. Give everybody a degree of security of tenure, ensure that there's adequate land rights protection in the law and in practice, and make sure that men and women are treated equally when it comes to housing, land, and property rights. Make sure that succession laws and inheritance rights are fair and equitable in that regard. And, you know, a range of measures. But the, those messages really need to come from the top, you know, both yeah. the civilian government as well as the military needs to realize that it's in the, both of their interests to be more pro-people when it comes to HLP issues. And in doing so, you benefit society as a whole and you don't lose a whole lot. You know, it's a whole new mind frame that needs to take hold because for so long there's been this attitude of we are the state therefore we control all of the land therefore anyone who's on that land is simply a nuisance that we need to be gotten rid of in order for us to take it over and that's kind of been the the view um yeah, or less been, independence that, that operandi for a very long time and um but we've had this conversation before the the answers are simple and uh, all it requires is the political will to be able to do it but that always brings us back to the 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 major legal impediment, which is the Constitution. 
uh, and uh, that needs to be changed. And you can already see that just the whispers of uh, any amendments is causing a furor in the parliament. Um, right. The military is pushing back very hard on that. Um, and some people say that's what got Kony killed several years ago, right. shot at the airport. That's um, the, the attorney general at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was pro-constitutional amendment. Um, we've, we don't see that if we don't see the fundamental legal guiding document of the country changed, the constitution, then we can't see a removal of the military out of the civilian affairs. Um, and if that does not happen, then the reinvestigation committees that you're talking about and these other committees that administer land, um, there's no way to make them independent because they'll always be meddled with. Uh, by the military. Why? Because all of the land grabbing is all the biggest land grabbers are the military. And so any attempts at transitional justice, restitution, um, even to some degree uh, what's going on in the peace process, the, the majority interest that's being threatened by anything that would la lead towards land justice is, is a direct attack on the interests of the military, um, whether that's economic or strategic or whatever the case may be um that's that is the that is the major problem and, and unless that's addressed then uh, it's not going to we're not going to get anywhere with this stuff um the well, other problem we all know that true democracy is only possible when there is a clear separation of power between the mm. military and the civilian political actors and, you know, exactly. until that day comes, uh, there's never going to be anything close to, you know, full democracy. We can just hope that, you know, the, they will take some of the lessons from Indonesia nearby, which, mm. you know, had a very similar arrangement in their national parliament, mm. um, where the military was assured a certain percentage of the seats. And they unilaterally decided that it was better for them to withdraw entirely and allow this the political process to be entirely civilian in nature and that has really benefited the country in in countless ways mm. you know so hopefully that will also be seen i'm sure they know all about it mm. um yeah. and then, you know i think they need to reach the point you know if you are a military person you know one of your great objectives in life of course is to ensure the you know territorial integrity of your country right i mean that's the driving force aside from all other like impure motivations that is a common theme that you know men in arms across the world share and i think that really does you know in a certain way drive the military with all of these ethnic armed groups in place um china perpetually there you know on the northern border from a military perspective purely they have some measure of you know justification for feeling concerned right whether they necessarily need to be in the government to continue to have those concerns, uh, you know, obviously remains an open question that I think the vast majority of the world would have an answer to, which says, you know, you can easily relinquish political power in the interest of stronger democracy in your country mm. and not necessarily suffer hugely in the process unless, you know, unless crimes have been committed. Well, I mean, this is you've hit the nail on the head because what what is the problem here? It's not just land, right? The problem is also being a war criminal. <laughs> so if you're going to do something that's going to lead towards transitional justice, 
uh, I think we have an idea of who the first people in the dock is going to be. So there's obviously, um, you know, I think this is a part of the reason why there was, during the transition, um, some people hanging up the uniforms and putting on the business suit because you don't want to be around in a uniform in the future if uh, if questions are being asked about who's responsible for war crimes. Right, 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 right. Well, um, but we but, shall uh, see. Back, we shall see. Yeah, but back, but back to your point earlier. I mean, the 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 real thing is, uh, the real issue is that you could address a lot of the land grabbing issues without affecting the interests of the military. That's the thing. It's this culture of impunity and no right. questioning of authority, right? That is just entrenched, completely entrenched. But if you've stolen a hundred acres of land and you're only using five, then give back the ninety-five to the person who wants to grow his corn. No one can, like that is not a threat to the military. It, it's it's not the practicalities. It's just the idea of anyone um, asking for accountability from those actors because they believe that they're beyond that. Yep. Absolutely so true. Mindset problem as well. Yeah, no question about it. And you know, I think if a if a survey was taken of all of the land that has is has been grabbed, let's say since 1988, I'm certain you would find that a huge portion of it has actually never been used. Um, well, as is the case in many many conflict ridden countries. You know, the land is taken at the beginning, mm. but then it's actually never used by. The land grabbers, whether it's military or you know large-scale transnational corporations, the government, etc., and I'm I'm certain you would have a similar situation in Myanmar. Oh, I'm I'm 100% certain it would be the same. And in fact, Gret um, mm-hmm. has had some reports, I think, in 2016, where just just in the VFV alone, um, only about 15% of VFV grants have been used and planted on since. Um, since 2012 so that's right. that's that's just in the vfv section like if we're right so the that- argument i mean the normal argument of at the international level of people that have grabbed land in the past not wanting to give it back is simply it's materially impossible for me to give you the land back because i've built a shopping mall on it or mm. i've built an airport on it or i've built a road on it and you know justifiably and that's what international law says if you can really prove beyond any doubt that that is the case then maybe you don't have to necessarily give it back, but you certainly do have to pay adequate compensation. Mm-hmm. And you know, if the land is is empty and has not been used, um, that argument, of course, just flies out the window. So, you yeah. know, it's every possibility in a in an environment of you know a politically conducive environment um, for the vast majority of land to be given back. And you know, I mean, what a gesture that would be for uh, the building of peace in the country. I mean, imagine that, you know, leaders in the country stood before the nation and said, these practices are now over. We are giving back all land that has been grabbed since 1962, for instance, or 1988. We need to turn a new page in the interests of the evolution of our democracy. And this is a first step towards doing that. And let's get these things into, um, you know, into the political party platforms of every major political party in the country for the next national election, which I think is, which is next year, right? Yeah, 2020, Um, yep. Yeah, let's get it into every political party platform, you know, specific measures that they will take 
to end land grabbing, to provide restitution, and to secure um, housing, land, and property resources for everyone. You know, another another land issue that we've worked on, by the way, in Myanmar that we haven't talked about yet is the whole question of climate displacement, mm. um, which is going to affect Myanmar in a massive way along its 2,000-kilometer-long um, coastline. It's much mm. longer than people realize. And it's already happening in a whole range of spots um, in the country. And as you'll recall, we, we've proposed that they should set up a, a national climate, a Myanmar national climate land bank as a policy tool, an institutional tool that can be used to amass land that can be, you know, provided to communities that have to move because of looming climate displacement. Yeah. And there was a flurry of interest in that. You know, we, we issued that report of displacement decisions in middle of 2018. So just you know, a year and a half ago. And there was a lot of interest um, in Napidaw by government officials and, and members of parliament and a range of others. And it was brought to their attention by, you know, local NGOs that we work with their Burmese NGOs. Yeah. Um, but I haven't heard much in the in the past few months, and I, I don't suspect there's been much progress. But, you know, yeah. they better do something about this issue, too, because, you know, if they don't, they're going to have yet another massive um, displaced population to deal with, you know, in a country yeah. which is already one of the displacement capitals of the world. And, yeah. you know, yeah. no yeah. one any good to have people languishing in camps um, for years or slums because they can afford no other, you know, legal land option. And really, you know, somebody just needs to stand back and and pull back on the reins and say, whoa, let's just take, a, uh, let's reanalyze what we've got on the housing, land, and property rights front. And let's really try to put it together a framework that, you know, is workable and yeah. fair and just. It's not that radical of a proposition. It's not rocket science either, but the, um, but the, I think in terms of the the climate stuff, I mean, uh, you've already got 600,000 IDPs in the country, more or less. Um, mm -hmm. And do you, do you want to have a bunch more on top of that um, and completely right. uncontrolled migration and, and urban pressures and into peri-urban areas and all of this stuff uh, when it's something you could foresee and, and do something about? But it's a very progressive idea, so I don't expect to see... Uh, a lot of uh, haste on that front yet um, but the thing that it has going for it is that it's almost apolitical um, right, right. it's nothing it's nothing to do with ethnic people it's nothing to do with citizenship it's nothing to do with conflict um, it's just about average people needing somewhere to move to um, you know to combat climate change um, so it does have that going for it which is very good yeah, and you know, even though the people and governments of Myanmar are not the, the chief cause of climate change and resultant rising sea levels, coastal erosion, and, and ultimately climate displacement, whether they like it or not, it is the responsibility of the national government to secure housing, land, and property rights for everyone. Mm. And why not make the effort to you know, turn around the extraordinary reputational losses that the country has gone through in recent years and try to turn it around by having a positive policy um, and legal framework developed that actually, you know, supports the rights of everyone mm -hmm. to a decent home 
It's not that radical of a proposition again. It's not even that progressive. It's simply what, you know, parts of the Constitution say and what the Human Rights Treaties say that they've voluntarily ratified. You know, we need to get to that point and they're going to benefit from it. I mean, that's the thing. The government, the military, and certainly the people themselves are going to ultimately benefit from an approach that, you know, really embraces these rights Mm -hmm. rather than sees them as a vehicle for, uh, you know, fraudulent enrichment and things of that nature. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think, you know, the ingredients for moving forward in a positive way, I think, are, are all there. They're widely known. There's a whole range of competent civil society organizations um, in the country working on these matters. And, you know, the, the international community needs to support these processes. But ultimately, it's going to be up to the political power holders in the country to ensure that, you know, positive things happen you know, on this front. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for for some of the for some of the parts of the country, the the solutions are quite straightforward, I think. But um, something we didn't really talk about that much is um, the difficulties that the the peace process is um, throwing up, and the reason why it's part of the reason why it's completely stalled now is that nobody knows how to really deal with this idea of federalism. Um, and mm. nobody really knows uh, what a what a post ceasefire peace process would even look like. Mm. Um, and no one's really talking about uh, about land, for example, in the, in in that context. Nobody, uh, for example, I mean, you know, I was at this conference a few weeks ago, and, and different CSOs were talking about, well, um, what about customary law? And how are we going to make sure that we get this into the national land law? Um, okay, yes, I understand that. But are you suggesting that if the national land law is everything that we would like it to be and it recognises customary law, that all of a sudden the EAOs will give up the idea of their own land policies and that they will suddenly accept the national, the central government's land law and policies as being what is going to be administered in their areas? Right. I right. know that that's going to happen. And um, just for listeners, EAO stands for Ethnic Armed Organization. Yeah. Um, so that that's a conversation that nobody is even having yet. Right. But and it, you know, the remarkable thing to, to, to hear about, if you're not familiar with the situation in the country, is that mm-hmm. you have big chunks of territory in Myanmar, which are occupied by ethnic armies who have basically total control over that over these large swaths of land in various parts of the country they have jurisdiction they they issue laws and they often even issue uh, land titles right so they're issuing their own land titles in their own areas that they control um even though under law technically all of the territory of myanmar belongs to you know the state of myanmar so what's indeed what's going to happen if there is a peace agreement to those locally issued land titles which one prevails a national one or a local one and it's a real doris box oh it's it's very very complicated and my opinion is that it's being ignored Mm -hmm. purposefully at the moment because it's it's just in the too hard basket nobody really knows um you know everybody knows that that the, the the right thing to say is let's recognize customary land use policies and and practices 
but nobody wants to move from that to say who is going to be in charge of administering those policies in which areas what if there's dual administrations what if you know all of these questions and nobody has a has a comprehensive vision of what it could look like um and that's a problem that's a problem because if land if land and restitution and these issues is not addressed in the peace process and all of the EAOs and the CSOs and all civil society doesn't get on the one page about how to um, negotiate and argue um, for what the future is going to look like, then we're going to be back to this situation we've had in the past where everyone's disjointed and nobody's got a, a comprehensive vision outside of their own state about how this should all work. Absolutely. So I think Absolutely. The, the peace process is a very, very complicated issue. I mean, do you see any hope on the horizon for the peace process coming to a, any sort of comprehensive agreement, or will it just kind of slog along with a few ceasefire agreements and a few non-aggression no. pacts and things like that nature, but no real agreement? So nothing really. So no. the processes that started essentially from independence 1948 will just continue on with no real resolution that's 70 that's, years later that's where the evidence points i mean why are we still talking about having bilateral agreements between the tapador and different armed groups when mm -hmm. they're trying to negotiate a national ceasefire agreement um, it doesn't make sense they have a very long history of focusing their forces on one part of the country and harassing that part of the country while they sort of let another area recover and then they'll change focus and do it again somewhere else and so the eos are never really allowed to sort of settle down and control and at the moment it's, it's the northeast um but um uh, but i don't think they saw what was happening in arakan in terms of the arakan army and their strength i didn't i don't think they predicted that but um so for the moment the southeast and the karens are getting a breather um mm -hmm. And then they move along to somewhere else. Um, but then the national ceasefire agreement as it stands is completely useless. How, um, just for, um, you know, listeners' clarity, can you explain the relationship between the the Arakan army in Rakhine State and mm. the Rohingya? And how are they linked up? Are they linked up? Uh, actually, I... I don't know enough about that to give you a a good answer, to be honest. My my feeling is that they're not linked in any way at all. I mean, the Arakan army is all about Rakhine nationalism and, and the fact that Rakhine has been um, marginalised from, from the centre for many, many decades. It's, you know, completely underdeveloped. It's basically ignored by the by the what they say is the Burmese government. Um, right, so it actually doesn't have that much. It doesn't have much to do with the, the expulsion of the Rohingya at all. Oh no, 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 no! It's more an, a local ethnic group in the west of the country that's fighting against the central government for greater autonomy or maybe even independence for yeah. the the Rakhine state. Yeah, exactly. And do uh, they have a position on the question of Muslims <laughs> and other uh, <laughs> that don't have citizenship in Rakhine State? I I don't know actually. I don't know what their position is. Um, but the interesting thing about the interesting thing about Rakhine is that when when the Tatmadaw kind of swept in and 
expelled all of these people, um, Rakhine people themselves were clapping and cheering, um, you know, because they've got rid of the Muslim problem. Um, but what they weren't doing in terms of analysis was saying, well, now we've got a load of Tatmadaw battalions in Rakhine State. <laughs> um, right, right. And right. so, you know, so, um, part, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, that's where the analysis for me is a bit strange because uh, uh, the Rakhines were so eager to get rid of the Rohingya population um, without really considering that the Tatmadaw is not really their friend either. You know, um, it is a bit confusing because I mean that was Aung San Suu Kyi's opening statement at the International Court of Justice the other day. You know, was trying to make it out as if it was simply a battle between the Arakan army and the Tatmadaw, the military. Uh, I, I think when state. she was, I think when she was referring to armed insurgency, she was referring to to Asa, not the Arakan army. So the. I, that was my understanding. I think she was referring to the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army um, as the armed insurgents or whatever, because the initial their initial motivation for the um, for the clearance operations was because of these attacks on the police stations. And yeah, but she was saying this in the context of current ongoing conflict and oh, saying right. the Rohingya were not were not party to that conflict, etc. So I guess uh, trying to make the argument that it was therefore. That it was, um, you know, it was neither genocide, <laughs> as alleged, nor was it um, anything ongoing, right? Know, and, or, and did nor did it in any way target the Muslim population. I think that was her argument. Um, Some of the that's, arguments. That's why I got confused because I mean oh. there was that fledgling, I guess, pro Rohingya grouping um, back in twenty what twenty sixteen twenty seventeen mm -hmm. that was very small. And then they use that as the pretext to essentially invade yeah. and push everyone across the border. Yeah, because the Arakan army were also not really, yeah, back in that time, they were not really that active. Um, that's been a more recent development. But um, yeah, some of the arguments at the ICJ were quite confusing. Um, the uh, I think it was Okoa um, said something to the effect of, um, you know, there's an ongoing conflict in uh, Rakhine State, so it's... Um, it's not just it's not just dangerous for Rohingya people. It's dangerous for everyone. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're on their side, I mean, you have to make arguments like that, right? Is that what you're really going to argue? Uh... <laughs> anyway. Well, I think the uh, the entire American population might have asked similar questions today, on the day that uh, Donald John Trump was impeached. Mm. I mean, when when you know when you hear. For the only third time in you know U.S. history was a president impeached, mm. um, and but when you heard the Republican arguments trying to um, you know convince Democrats that it should not occur, mm. I mean the arguments were just from any objective perspective <laughs> staggering yeah. in their absurdity, you know, over yeah. and over and over, and it's just like, why don't you just address the facts, guys? <laughs> To address well, the facts, and maybe you have a point, but you you know you can't just call, you know be calling names and things of that nature. You know they don't really agree that there are any facts. This is the thing, and it's interesting to see how far we've come because you know Clinton was impeached for lying about a sexual relationship inside the White House, 
and the Republicans well, and for lying they were about all, it. They were, and lying about it. But that's they were all over that, and that's that was his crime and misdemeanor. Um, whereas soliciting, uh, you know, a bribe from a foreign power to potentially influence an election, Republicans are now saying, "Well, where's the where's the problem here?" Right. <laughs> so right. that's an incredible difference in the in the level of the offense i would say well uh, indeed it is and you know now that we're just morphing into discussions about the u.s we won't do this too long yeah sorry but, yeah uh, back to the general overall theme of you know this podcast jointly venturing you know its ultimate aim is to have discussions and promote um people to start talking about this idea that you know maybe it's time to move towards a world based upon our shared humanity rather than our, our nationality or our citizenship. And I think when you look at the world today, um, you know, there's a number of countries that really stand out as, you know, deep opponents to this idea. I mean, with the deepest of suspicions um, of this idea. And, you know, very often the United States comes to the top of that list. Mm. And, um, you know, their decision to never ratify the International Criminal Court, for instance, and to penalize uh, countries that have ratified the International Criminal Court, and to even consider refusing visas for officials from the mm. International Criminal Court to come to the UN to have meetings and, and uh, uh, you know, speeches regarding the workings of the International Criminal Court is, you know, truly staggering. And it shows, mm. it shows the extent to which, you know, uh, opposition to this idea, um, you know, is very widespread in an era of, you know, immensely growing nationalism and populism and autocracy and oligarchy and authoritarianism and, and waning democracy, etc. And, you know, we're trying to get people to talk about an entirely new vision of the world, not grounded in our in nationalism or, or populism or any of these things, simply grounded in the fact that these most obvious of, of facts that we all share planet Earth, we're all dependent on planet Earth entirely, and we're all human beings with essentially the same wishes and needs and aspirations as anyone else. Um, that's a better way to move forward in the centuries to come than to continue mm -hmm. to think that the nation state model that's only been around for you know, 12, 15 generations of the human race um, is necessarily going to be the way we go forward into the, you know, 22nd century um, and beyond. And we need to really start thinking about the limits of, you know, the planet to sustain the populations that we have, how to produce things that we want that don't produce CO2 gases and all of the rest. And, you know, in our view, one of the ways to move that forward is to begin this discussion of, you know, isn't it time to really start thinking about how to move to the next stage of our um, political evolution? And when you see, uh, you know, actions by the U.S., for instance, against the International Criminal Court, which has been established to try war criminals and those who have committed crimes against humanity and such vigorous opposition to that, um, it makes you realize how far we have to come. I mean, that is the country that began the process <laughs> I was about to say. addressing international war crimes yeah. in Nuremberg in yeah, 1936. They're very, yeah, they're, they're very, um, very pro at the beginning. I mean, they're the originators of this sort of concept. They were the driving force behind the entire design of the United Nations system, yeah. behind the UN Charter, 
they hosted the founding meeting of the United Nations in San Francisco. Um, I mean, the list goes on. They were the they were the leading proponents of international law in many respects. The the yeah. the president, former presidents, FDR, Fr uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's wife. Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the driving forces behind the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Yep. And lest we forget, Woodrow Wilson, who was president in the 19-teens, and of course was the driving force behind the League of Nations, even though the United States never entered it, famously said, we are all world citizens. And the tragedy is, is that most of us do not realize that. I mean, that was uttered by a U.S. president in 1915, I believe. Not all that long ago, we had presidents leading that country who had that level of awareness about um, the world. And today we have a president that was impeached for a whole range uh, of reasons. So we have a long uphill battle. And, you know, part of that peaceful battle, um, you know, will involve ultimately Myanmar and and encouraging people in that country also to look outward more and to focus on the similarities that all those 135 ethnic groups have with one another, focus on the shared belief structures that almost all of them have in, in most important attributes of life and focus on the, the, the wishes and aspirations that all those groups have, which also largely mesh with one another. You know, and then once again, you know, that's why it's so worrying to see so much nationalism emerging, um, you know, in a country like Myanmar, where, you know, not only is that just so anathema to any proper reading of what Buddhism is meant to be about, um, but ultimately it's going to get the country nowhere when, you know, yeah. when they have 135 ethnic groups. Yeah, um, but you've, you touched on, you've touched on something very important there is that, is that the idea and, and what you're talking about with um, national uh, global citizenship and all of this stuff is the idea that's very deeply entrenched in Myanmar itself is that um, the idea of nationality tied to ethnicity rather than citizenship being predicated on being a good citizen, being a part of the society, paying your taxes, not getting right. into trouble, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a very, very deeply entrenched uh, notion is that uh, is your identity and citizenship attached to your ethnicity. Um, right, right. And, and you know, it will take a, it will take a struggle by a lot of people mm -hmm. to reach the next stage of, you know, their own evolution. But it's really important to point out that you don't need to give up your own national identity or ethnic identity or whatever identity you want to have for yourself, whether it's created by yourself or whether it comes from, you know, who your parents were or where you live. Uh, if you embrace the idea of world citizenship, I mean, all of us simultaneously contain multitudes as Walt Whitman so famously said once, mm. you know, we can simultaneously be a man and an English speaker and a resident of a city that is within a state, which is within a country, which is within a region, and we can support different football teams, and we can do all sorts of stuff simultaneously as the very same person. Mm. So all we're really doing, ultimately, with, with the concept of world citizenship is, is adding and augmenting um, who we are. We're not taking anything away. We're mm. adding on to who we are, and 
you know, showing through that process that ultimately we care about everyone everywhere and mm-hmm. hope that everyone everywhere cares as much about us as we care about them. And that's the true stepping stone towards a true sustainable future. Um, down the road, nation states, 195 nation states fighting against each other for dwindling resources is a recipe for disaster in, in an era of rising temperatures, rising sea levels and, and ever increasingly severe climate change. That's not yeah. the way to go forward and do go forward as as a species and finally embrace our our unity. And, and uh, you know, I really firmly believe that we have a much brighter future to look forward to if we pursue that route, you know, rather than looking to countries which are looking increasingly inward and becoming more nationalistic. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, folks, no place is necessarily better than any other place. You know, both of us have been to many, many parts of this planet, and every single part of it is extraordinary in its own way. And every single group of people is extraordinary in its own way. All of them are invaluable and and of incalculable um, value. And in no place is better, no place is worse. We all essentially share the same planetary surface and that's all we got. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there's no planet B yeah. out there. There's nothing anywhere as far as we know. <laughs> and yeah. we have everything we need at you know, the tip of our fingers to make this a far, far, far more sustainable place than, than we're living in now. You know, and that's that's the yeah, hope yeah. we have with this podcast is that it gets people thinking and discussing with their friends and families and coworkers that, you know, maybe it is time, you know, and what is it? Why does it scare you to think about the idea of uh, having world citizenship at birth, you know, concurrent with your own national birth certificate that you might get? What? Why does it scare you to think about perhaps voting on a international opinion poll with your cell phone? that guides the decision-making of the next stage of the United Nations General Assembly, which is approaching perhaps some form of, you know, global federal political uh, structure, like a world parliament. You know, what is it about that that scares people? And there's very legitimate fears. Um, You know, I can easily imagine. Um, The number one fear, of course, is that you get a global despot on top of the whole thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, that has to be absolutely guaranteed not never to emerge by the structure that you develop um but you know what we have now is amazing you know after the second world war the structures that were set up are extraordinary advancements over what came before them right but Mm. maybe it's and and as flawed as they may be and as weak as they may be these days and as as unrespected as they um may be they still do largely work and, you know, the, the things that the United Nations and its agencies do are extraordinary in so many different ways. Um, but we really need to start thinking, we need to have a vision of what might be an even better, more evolved, more comprehensive way of, you know, organizing ourselves in a way that ensures perpetual peace and stability. That's why this concept of world citizenship has been around for as long as it has been. I mean, the famous book pamphlet written by Kant, Immanuel Kant, hundreds of years ago, called Perpetual Peace. The number one proposal in that was, of course, world citizenship, coming from a guy that never went further than 20 or 30 kilometers from his his birthplace. He didn't need to have personal interactions with people from Brazil and Botswana and Belgium and Thailand and 
Russia and everywhere else to know that we're all the same. He just knew it, um, you know, intuitively. And even Socrates was proclaiming that he was neither a citizen of Athens nor of Greece, but a citizen of the world more than 2,000 years ago. So we're not talking about a new concept here by any stretch. Mm. Um, but we are talking about perhaps the need to hopefully find a way forward where that becomes the you know organizing principle of yeah. everyone. And ultimately, obviously, that it will facilitate more enjoyment of human rights, you know, less hardship, less conflict, less torture, less deprivation, yeah. and all of those things. But the less the 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 the, the positive thing, thing is that uh, although you see the rise of nationalism and tribalism and all that stuff, that is that is those are trends that that swing back the other way uh, eventually as well. They're just political fashion, and and so you've, awesome. got to, you've got to you've got to make the gains when the fashion when the pendulum swings back in the other direction for when it does swing back in the right direction again. To the right, rather, not the right That's direction. That's true. To the That's true. <laughs> um, at the same time, one could argue that the reason those things are emerging now is because they're kind of like the last gasp effort by the, the true believers that they know that those days are coming to an end. You know, and maybe mm -hmm. they served a very useful purpose, you know, for a certain period of time. Um, but they know that change is on the horizon and they know there's ever growing numbers of people who are truly interconnected with the global economy, with the global civilization, um, who travel frequently, who know people from everywhere. And, and slowly but surely, that's going to influence, you know, the shape of the world to come. And they're not ready for it. So the quickest and easiest thing to do is turn back towards nationalism, because mm -hmm. that's what you're familiar with. And you think you can turn the clock back, or you hope you can, to some <laughs> delusory past where it was so much better but it's never really been better in the past, you know? So yeah. they can try, again. but it's not going to succeed. It might succeed briefly for one five-year period or something like that. But, you know, we need we need the courage to look forward, um, you know, instead of backwards and, and really ultimately try to look at things in the dramatic way that we need to, which is, you know, we are talking here not just about, you know, political development or economic progress we're we're talking ultimately about the survival of our species when you look at it through the lens mm. of climate change i mean i mean you know it's going to be 42 degrees where i'm sitting right now tomorrow you know should never be that hot yeah. <laughs> where i and that's just one yeah. example of millions and fires burning yeah, the, the, sorry i was sorry to interrupt i was going to say that the, one of the problems we have uh, as a species is that we are so short-sighted you know you think about things only in terms that are relative to your own lifetime so you're talking about the united nations before and its formation stuff like that there's a lot of criticism of the un are these agencies are useless they're not doing anything blah 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 but that is only that's not looking at the the 500 years that came before that and all the chaos that came along with it um right. you know right. we're, we're bound to look at what's in front of us within a 50-year time period um, but the problem is, um, as you say, dwindling resources, climate change, those things are not going away. They're not fashion like nationalism. They, they're here to stay. And that hopefully forces uh, us to make the difficult choices which are relevant far beyond 
our own lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, the experts of the, the world on climate change have repeatedly said that the cutoff date is 2030. So, you know, in a few days, it's going to be 2020. We literally have yeah. 10 years to get our act together collectively to keep the temperature levels at an acceptable level and CO2 emissions at an acceptable level. You know, every year since the Paris Climate Accords and all previous years, CO2 levels have increased on a single year when they've decreased at a, at a global level. So, yeah. you know, we're not winning that battle in any way. And no one is, no one gets off the hook with this one. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you moved to. You are going to have to deal with this issue. And yeah. so we're all in it. Again, you know, always we're all in it together. And unless we act together as one unified human race, we're probably not going to win this battle. You know, and I don't really want that to happen. Mm. You know, I think, you know, humanity's worth saving despite all of its flaws. And, you know, I don't want to be too melodramatic, but, you know, we're, we really are talking about deep fundamental civilizational changes. I mean, if you read the book, The Uninhabitable Earth by, um, uh, I can't remember his first name, uh, Wallace Wells is his last name. I mean, it is truly staggering in terms of, you know, the scientific data that it puts forward on the impact of climate change on every single aspect of society and what it would actually take to transform our economy into one that was truly sustainable. And it, essentially, we need to retrofit every single piece of metal and engine on the entire planet. And it will just cost trillions upon trillions of dollars to do that. And are we going to put the, the money in that direction? Mm. I don't know. Well, the question is going to be, what's the alternative? <laughs> well, you know, humans do not usually act in a preventative manner too successfully, you know. No. no. They generally need to get the hard stuff happening right in front of their faces before they really do, you know, what's necessary and you know, I mean all this data and, and information and scientific evidence has been out there for decades, you know. Plenty of time to act, but you know, we have governments in the world that simply refuse to do so. The United States pulls out of the Paris Climate Accords. You know, Australia refuses to do virtually anything to reverse climate change, et cetera. And, and, you know, when you have big countries like that, China as well now taking over the U.S. as the world's the largest polluter. I mean, we are really in a, you know, dangerous period of time. So let's, you know, try to think positive and try to think that 2020 will be a year when a lot of things turn around. Um, after a few years of, you know, quite uh, negative developments, really, at almost every level, um, there's not a lot of positive news to report when it comes to um, geopolitical developments. And there's a lot of good news in the world, tech, new technological developments and more solar energy being used than ever before and things of that nature. But at the same time, you know, we're really, you know, struggling against very large obstacles. Um yeah, maybe next time we'll keep it positive. We can talk about Syria and Palestine. <laughs> right. There you go. Well, that yeah, that day could come. That day could definitely come. So, yeah, once again, another another thing that started in 1948 that's still unresolved, right, is yeah. uh, his yeah. situation in Palestine and the occupation of the West Bank and formerly Gaza and really all of historic Palestine. But uh, we can talk about that easy issue, you know, another day. Yeah, um, but thanks very much for today, Sean. It's been absolutely great. Thanks for all your knowledge and wisdom on HLP issues in Myanmar, and um, for giving insights from the ground. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's um, 
yeah, it's always very interesting to talk about these uh, these issues. Yeah, well, we hope that um, you know people in Myanmar do listen to this somehow and um, you know see that our objective is really trying to find a way forward from the situation as it is now to one where you know truly everyone in the country, every single person, is able to live in a decent house on a piece of land that is secure. They're protected against arbitrary eviction and displacement and then that can be used as a springboard for greater peace and prosperity and stability in the country and that's what we hope will be the outcome so thanks again and we'll see you all next time in the next episode jointly venture bye now